0: Oh wow! It's 9:20. We need to get started. Revelation waits for no man. I know it's waiting. Oh well, let's get started. Hopefully, you can grab an outline. This is will be. I don't think there's any chance that we will have another class on Revelation after today. We're going to finish it up, one way or another. So. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, if we can open together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, we thank you for your word, we thank you especially for this book, and I pray as we can conclude our time in looking at it, that it would be pleasing in your sight to bless us with a right understanding, with growing faith, and with growing love for you, Father. Help us to be confident that you are the God who saves us to the end, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a couple of things I want to notice. I, We are in the book of Revelation. We are on chapter 22 and we looked at about the first half of the chapter. I finished talking last time. Last point we looked at was the judgment by works. I just threw that back in there to notice there was one thing that we didn't comment on and this is beginning in verse uh, 12 where very clearly Revelation affirms what the Bible affirms everywhere that everyone will be judged according to his work. And we did say last time, the wicked get strict justice according to their works. The righteous get eternal life all on the work of Christ. All of our heaven, all of our righteousness is exactly the same. Nobody's any different because nobody does anything to be saved except receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so all of us enter heaven on the exact same basis. However, God in his grace and its Shown in several places does reward us according to our works, which would not deserve anything if God judged according to strict justice. But once you are his child, and you are washed, and you are cleansed, and you are forgiven, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, then God is so gracious that he even rewards our imperfect and, yes, sin-stained obedience with Rewards so much so that he even says, as we, as we closed on last time, that even that cup of cold water given in his name, given by one who believes in him, who, whose righteousness is all of Christ, will receive a reward. And so they, God crowns his own gifts. He rewards by his grace what does not deserve a reward because he loves us that much. And so they, the believers will be judged by their works in accordance, that is, with the level of reward they're going to get. All of their entrance is by Christ. The unbelievers are judged, strictly speaking, according to their works, and all of their punishment is going to be based on the number of sins that they commit, and everything they do is a sin, just like if God were to look at everything we did apart from Christ, it would be all sin. And so we just need to keep that in mind, but the judgment is according to works, and the Bible says that, and we want to recognize it. Verses 14 and 15. So we looked at Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega, again, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, clearly, uh, Christ is claiming to be fully God in this verse. And then he says, and this, there's a textual issue here, blessed are those who do his commandments. That's the majority text. But there is a strong witness for the critical text, which says, blessed are those who wash their robes. In the Greek, it's two letters in each word, very close words, So it could be a, an instance of haplography where a scribe messed up something. Um, and that could be what, either way, by the way. I'm not saying, it's, you know, for either one. How did this alternate reading get in there? And that's the, the difficulty. We can, we can show how either one fits, right? So, blessed are those who, and it's literally present tense participle. Blessed are those who are doing, who are keeping the commandments. And the same thing's true. For the robes, one. It's blessed are those who are washing their robes. It's present tense, participle. Well, if it's keeping the commandments, it's clear that the Bible has said this um, several other times uh, in this book. Blessed are those who keep the things in this book. Verse 7. Well, obviously, uh, that's true. And in heaven, everyone in that new city is keeping the commandments perfectly. So there it is. I mean, you're in heaven. They are keeping the commandments. Blessed are all those who will be righteous forever. Yes, their, their entrance into life was by the imputed righteousness of Christ. But when we are in heaven, we're not going to have any actual sin. We'll never commit another sin. And we will keep the commandments perfectly. So there's nothing wrong with saying blessed are those who do his commandments. Because they are the only ones who are going to have a right to the tree of life. Because they're, they're the only ones in heaven now. They're the, the ones in heaven now have uh, eternal life. And they are made righteous. Righteous. And so it is good uh, to say that. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying that, you know, somehow they've earned their way in. They're in there because of Christ alone. They're only going to obey from that point on as all of us will only ever obey in heaven. However, you could also say, blessed are those who wash their robes. Because the fact of the matter is, the reason why we're in heaven is that our robes, our clothing has been washed by Christ. And... uh, the picture again of this all these earthly images are you know those who are continually righteous and it's always uh, by the righteousness of christ and so uh that could be the case we actually saw this very same image in chapter 7 verse 14 of revelation where it said at that time remember god is sealing those who are his And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and here it is, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so this is just showing that even throughout eternity, we will be glorifying Christ who has given us these robes that are eternally washed. So again, either, either phrase can work, and it's just difficult to tell which one, because normally I go with the majority text because I think it's the most objective rule. Majority text just means the most texts say it this way. The critical text, they'll say, are the oldest and best? Uh, and that's not necessarily true. Best is in most preserved, which might also mean least reliable, so nobody used them, so they didn't wear out. Right? My best shoes in my house are the ones I never wear. So it's just, a, it's just a subjective thing to say they're the best. You don't know they're best. You're just saying that. Uh, so normally I just go by the majority text, but there's a very strong witness for the critical text here. There's a lot of manuscripts that do say washing their robes. And so and to me, it really doesn't matter. Either way, we can see how it fits in the corpus of Scripture and doesn't violate or contradict any of the words, uh, the verses. Um, Outside the city are the wicked, so there are no washing out there. There's no commandment keeping out there. Um, And heaven and hell continue forever. The righteous will continue forever. Uh, In verse 16, speaks of Jesus being the one who has sent his angel to testify to you of these things. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So this book really is the revelation of Jesus. I know oftentimes we say the revelation of John. Uh, It's the revelation of Jesus that he gives to John. And that's the very thing that we saw all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1. The first sentence of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to his servants, which God gave him to show to his servants, etc. And so the book is ending the way it began. It's the revelation of Jesus in the churches. This ties it back to the opening. Uh, Jesus calls himself the morning star. That was a title for him, and that's what he gives to overcomers again in chapter two twenty-eight. So you're seeing a lot of these same themes at the end that were at the beginning, because there he says, "I will give him the morning star. I will give him myself." Right? He who overcomes, I will give him myself. All right. In this morning star image, we see it numbers twenty-four seventeen. Balaam talking about a star will come out of Jacob. Matthew two two, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Um. Luke 1, the day spring from on high has visited us in one of the songs, and so forth. And so um, the morning star rises in your heart, Second Peter. So again, an image that's... Remember, John, John is just so rich in images. And if you tried to count all the references, I just think you wouldn't be able to do it. It's just such a book that you just... I, I think it's just so saturated with scripture. The more you know the Bible, the more revelation is gonna to mean to you. And, and it's just an encouragement for us to get into scripture so that we can recognize these things and see how they're fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it speaks of the root of Jesse, the rod of Jesse. So David, notice, the root and the offspring of David, and a contradiction, right, for any normal person. You can't be the source of someone and its offspring, but you can be if you're the God-man, because the God-man made David, and the God-man was David's son, according to the flesh. So it's just a powerful image there. The root and the offspring of David. And again, Jesus is affirming the whole Old Testament when he does that. that this is one book about one Savior. So let's keep going here. Um, many verses that talk about this, this root of David or the branch of David. In Jeremiah uh, and other places of the Old Testament. Uh, in Romans, there shall be a root of Jesse. And Romans is citing Isaiah and so forth. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that brings us um, to the final section where I want to look at the time references. Right. So this is the difficult thing. This really uh, hinges a lot of things. And I've got some information for you. And I want to have a lot of time for questions because it is the last class. And this is the 36th class on Revelation. So we did the 22 chapters in 36 classes. Obviously, we didn't cover everything. <laughs> I'm sure for many of you I went way too slow, and for others I went way too fast. Uh, And I'm sure I left a lot of questions open for everybody. But I actually feel like I have a much better grasp on this book after having studied it. And I feel much more confident with it, and I hope you do a little bit at least. So the big uh, issue with the time references is with regard to the Preterist School, which I think is very popular in our day. Uh, And it applies the whole book to the... um, book uh to the jewish war dave could i ask you to do me a favor on my desk is a paperback book about this big and it's by kelly it's all, it's a commentary on the Re- book of revelation i was going to read it read to, from it here and i forgot to do that i forgot to grab it actually because uh, i want to read and he is one of the preterist uh, commentators that i use the big uh, issue really is regard to, therefore, when the book was written. The preterist view really hinges on that fact. If it's written after 70 AD, then the, as, as Gentry says, one of the preterist um, adherents, the, the view falls to the ground. And that, uh, that's not true for most of the, Positions. That's not true for most positions or most doctrines. It, throughout the Bible, when the book was written isn't really that important. It's what it says. So uh, I want to look at the time references. Uh, the Predator School, again, applies Revelation to the Jewish-Roman War that began in 66 A.D. That's really important. That means that the book had to be written by 64 or 65 at the latest. All right? So that's really tight time frame. Um, because it's clear that the war hasn't happened, but it's about to happen, right? So if it is the Jewish war, that's it, thank you, um, that, then, uh, then that's significant. The predator School argues for a literal application to a completion of the whole book before, um, to, before the Jewish-Roman War takes place. And if you look at all of the references together... Um, they truly are impressive. I think this, the time factors in the book is the strongest argument for the preterist position of an early date. Uh, verse 6 in our text. Um, and I'm just going to give you these. Must shortly take place. All right, this is chapter 22, verse 6. These are all in chapter 22. Must shortly take place. Verse 7, I am coming quickly. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, the time is near. In chapter 3, verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. So the time factors is their strongest argument, and they are impressive when you take them together. And the view hinges really on this view uh, more than any other view. Um, a majority of scholars throughout church history have taken a post-70 A.D. date for the composition of the book, including some of the earliest witnesses. Outside of the time references, um, there is, a, uh, for, to me, the, the, the significant factor is the weight of everything else. So if I just look at the time references, sure, I think I would incline to the preterist position. But when I look at everything... It seems to me that the symbolism of the book uh, more uh, affirms uh, a non-preterist position than a preterist position. So you can't just isolate the time references and say, well, that's going to be my determining factor. You've got to look at everything. That is a strong argument, but there are other arguments, I think, that are stronger. Uh, and so I really have come down on, I don't think that I can look at the book in terms of a preterist understanding of the book of Revelation is completely fulfilled in the Jewish Roman War. I'm going to read to you from Kelly. He is, uh, again, the great unveiling, and it's a post um, uh, postmillennial slash preterist understanding of the book. And I said to you last time that in this understanding, if you take it, and it's the preterist view and some post-millennial views of the book, then you have to look at 21 and 22 as having been fulfilled. That All of chapter 21 and all of chapter 22. You know, the dead being raised, us seeing Christ, no more death, all of that stuff has to some way have already happened. So I wanted to read to you by how one scholar argues for that. All right. So uh, on chapter 21, where where we read, and a new heaven and a new earth passed away, you know, have come down from heaven, the first one passed away. Kelly says this um, The prophet Isaiah plainly says that. People will still die in the new heavens and the new earth. A child living to 100 and dying, implying great medical advancements during this new age. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, therefore, represent the Jewish age which ended in 70 AD. Okay, you see what he's saying. While the new heaven and the new earth represent the Christian age, this is what's coming down out of heaven in chapter 21 which began at the first Pentecost after the Lord's resurrection. Now, I think um, the problem there is he's doing, he's making the same mistake with Isaiah. Isaiah's not talking literally either. Isaiah's talking about, you know, giving these images, a child's going to die at 100 and so forth, uh, to t- describe, again, eternal life. But he takes them literally in Isaiah, and again, here in the book of Revelation, um, Actually, he's not taking them literally in the book of Revelation. He's spiritualizing that and saying it's the church age. In the Christian church, there is no longer, so there's no more C. He says in the Christian church, there's no longer any distinction between nations and races, politics or doctrinal differences saved by grace and worshiping one Lord together. So he sees a time when all the church is going to become one on the earth before again Christ returns. When the bride comes down out of heaven, he says this, the bride doesn't simply appear on the earth, but she slowly comes down out of heaven and she began her descent at the first Pentecost uh, after the Lord's resurrection. And by the time she finishes walking down the aisle, she'll be with, you know, and all the nations will be one church. And so he's seeing again, this is the church age. Um, the... Um, when he looks at the, the, the measurements of the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, you know, the length and the breadth and the height being 1,500 miles, he says this. It must be remembered that the New Jerusalem is symbolic of God's saints in the Christian age. If this were a literal city, its base would cover half of the United States, its eastern base covering Baltimore, its western base barely missing Denver, while extending well into outer space. Some commentators have noted the dimensions to be a perfect cube. And I noticed that in, in terms of it being a spiritual picture of the perfection of the church that we will have in heaven. Um, uh, and, but he comments on this being like the Holy of Holies. And that's what the, the comparison that I made. And that the Christian church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yet, some have posited, such as, and he names a couple guys, Clarence Larkin, Patrick Heron, others. That the dimensions are also that of a pyramid. And this has scriptural support. Isaiah prophesied that the great pyramid of Giza, the only structure in the midst of Egypt and on the border thereof of upper and lower Egypt, would be for a sign and a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. This would thus signify that the new Jerusalem, the Christian church, is for all nations and peoples and languages of people, not just the Jews who had put out the Gentiles because both Sodom and, uh, and became both Sodom and Egypt. In either case, the New Jerusalem is figurative for all of Christ- Christendom throughout all history and not a picture of heaven, which is what I believe it is. All right, um, one more uh, quote here where he talks about no more temple. Uh, the Christian church has no centralized locations. Millions of Christians gathering throughout the world every week to worship in spirit and truth. And again, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor and the gates shall not be shut. This is what the Christian church is headed toward. Uh, alt, completely unthreatened by a fully evangelized world that does homage to the Lord's churches, holding them in high esteem a foreshadowing this was seen after the conversion of Constantine. And so you kind of had this physical reality then and he, he sees a physical reality of the church fulfilling these things where it says no one will enter Anything that defiles it except those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He says here, uh, the eventual evangelization of the, evangelization of the world requires churches to take sin seriously. Keeping themselves blameless before the world by dealing with sin in the lives of their members. Churches must be careful in their admission of members during all that they can to ensure a regenerate church. And so he's saying that we're going to get better at church discipline to the point that no one who is really an unbeliever is allowed in. The 12 fruits yielding her few fruit every month. And I'm just skipping certain things that I think are clear. He says, This possibility refers to the length of the Christian age, since 12 months is a full year. Therefore, this may refer to 12 different regions of the world at different stages of history, enjoying the fruit of believers' past hardship and martyrdom in their areas, especially since the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In everything, you see there's a physical correspondence to somehow the church getting this and not a spiritual picture of heaven in the eternal state. I see this same kind of thing lining up with really the the more dispensational views where there's always a physical component in the world today. You know, and trying to line it up in the latest headlines. But it's the same kind of thing, just trying to see it in the church age somewhere. No more curse, he says, as the Christian church advances toward the final day of resurrection when Christ returns, the curse, which was laid on the world in response to sin, will eventually be completely undone on the earth, subdued as God intended. And then he says this, the first scientific cure for a disease was not discovered until 1885, a cure for French rabies. Prior to that, no one knew what caused disease, and people were being bled for every ailment. Since then, medical science alone has made leaps and bounds, largely through the ministry of the Lord's churches. Christians giving their time and money and resources to help make the world a better place while preaching Christ's substitutionary atonement. So eventually, the church fueling true science is going to overcome sickness and death in this age. So that's how he sees no more curse being fulfilled in the church age. No light there, no night there, rather. He says, every member of a church is a priest of God has been called out of darkness into his uh, marvelous uh, light. I would thoroughly agree with that. Ordinarily, natural men and women wander aimlessly through life trying to meet their basic needs of shelter, food, and love. Christ promises, however, that if we seek him, he will provide for us the necessities of light. So no night there is also uh, something that we'll enjoy in this church age. And so um, that's a way in which to do that, seeing the face of Christ, right? We saw that. Well, that's... You know, again, seeing that, you know, the church is going to be so purified that looking at one another's Christians is going to be almost like seeing the face of Christ. And so there's always a way to make that happen. I think that kind of spiritualization is just beyond um, really what the book allows for. And I think it's better to see those time factors really as not being an indication of literal time. Uh, And I want to give you some arguments for that. So it seems to me that I've I mean I sort of seen that like this preterism and this dispensationalism both finding a historical little fulfillment in these uh, symbolic pictures somehow in the church age. And I think that's the weakest point. Because the spiritual nature of these images that John's taking from all over the book, uh, going back to the apocalyptic prophetic images in the Old Testament, seem to me point to the consummation. And if Revelation doesn't point to the consummation... Then it's really not in the book at all. It's only it ends before the second coming of Christ, which is a difficult position. They still see the second coming in Second Thessalonians and Acts and things like that, but not in Revelation. Revelation ends with the church age, waiting for the second coming. Uh, and I don't think the majority of commentators have seen it that way as well. Uh, the vast majority of these images found throughout the Bible. Um, uh, Suddenly and for the first time in many cases are going to have to happen factually, somehow historically. You know, think of the blood, the smoke, the darkness, the war imagery, and then the life, the face of Christ, no more death imagery. Uh, time references are, however, used, and this is part of my argument against the time references being determinative. Time references are often used to communicate and emphasize a prophetic urgency for believers: to live now for God. That is the way time references are used, all right? In particular, in accordance with the specific content and application of a prophecy. So look at these verses that I give you. Uh, I think this is in letter C, number one. 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. Paul says, I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, Paul here, again, is talking about the application here of a particular teaching to the church age and not that the time is short and revelation must be completed. Romans 13:11. and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. So the urgency is always live for Christ now, not... The end is right now. It's live for Christ now. That's the sense of the urgency. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And Again, the urgency to live now by faith. Not the urgency that Christ is, is going to come you know, in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, James, one of the earliest books that, the, of the New Testament. Written you know, maybe uh, 40 A.D., maybe even earlier. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, that's like 30 years from the destruction of Jerusalem. When, what is the, what's the application he makes? He doesn't say the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, flee Jerusalem. He says, be watchful in your prayers. But have a good prayer life because, you know, we're living at the end. We're in the last days. You see that all the time in Scripture. 1 John two eighteen, Little children. I'm sorry, uh, Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men the Lord is at hand the Lord is there therefore be gentle the Lord is the one who sees you right now therefore be gentle um, J- J- uh, James 5 9 do not grumble against one another brethren lest you be condemned behold the judge is standing at the door that's why you shouldn't grumble at one another not you know this is why you have to look and see that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed First um, John two eighteen. little children it is the last hour As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Uh, A lot of scholars believe 1 John was written uh, about the time of Revelation, or if it's written early, after Revelation. There's even some who believe the three letters of John are written in the 80s and 90s, uh, which would make what John's saying here, the last hour, not being able to refer to Jerusalem being destroyed, because it's already destroyed. Uh, Zephaniah 1.14, The great day of the Lord is near, It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter and the mighty men shall cry out. Now, obviously, second coming didn't happen or even the first coming near to Zephaniah four or 500 years before Christ. Hebrews chapter one, verse two, God has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Hebrews seems to be written later than 70 AD because it talks about those who heard Christ as if they're all gone now. And so the idea of prophetic urgency can be seen uh, in most of the time references uh, in John. Prophetic urgency, urgency to live for God, not Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. Um, Revelation 22, 7, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words. Do you see the, the import of the I am coming quickly? Keep the words of the prophecy. Uh, again, twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Therefore, because I'm coming quickly, live your whole life for Jesus, because I will judge you according to your work. So the prophetic urgency to live for God, not a literal urgency that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Um, Not sealing the book in verse 10 followed by the imperative call in verse 11 is what? Once again, be holy and righteous. So don't seal these things because you need to be holy and righteous. All right? Uh, Back in Revelation 10, by the way, in verse 4, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So if not sealing means Christ is about to come, then why in the middle of the prophecy did he seal some things? Which would mean he's not coming for a long time if sealing means, you know, uh, urgency to Christ to come. So I think there's some inconsistency there. Part of the, re- the revelation is to be sealed up. Why is that the case if, if, again, this is a literal end of the world urgency rather than be urgent and live for Christ? Isaiah 8:16, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And so again, a sealing up of the law that they were to keep now, Uh, not so much something that wasn't known or wasn't going to happen. Daniel 8.26, and the vision of the evening and mornings for which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Well, there's a clear example of sealing a vision that refers to many days, so it can mean that. But then in Daniel 12.4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase he said go your way Daniel for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end but they're unsealed when Christ returns and that's when we understand the whole book of Daniel so um, go ahead Quickly would mean soon and not suddenly. Uh, and I think that's um, important to notice that um, sometimes there, some of the words would mean sudden, a sudden coming, but coming quickly is is, again, in my understanding, a prophetically urgent plea. I'm coming quickly, therefore live for me. You know, and I think that's true if we understand the coming of Christ at our deaths, right? Most people in history have not lived to the second coming. But they've stood before the judge. He has come for them. You know, and I think that's really important to recognize. So at the end of the book, Behold, I'm surely I am coming quickly, even so come Lord Jesus. Um, I think that the only thing that the sealing argument really applies to is the futurist position. If it's strictly future, you can say, that um, the sealing position um, you can can argue for. Um, But for all mills and even some post mills, um, Revelation is being fulfilled now. There's a reason why you're not to seal the book. The beast was in in motion in that day, right? The, the, uh, The gospel was going out in that day. It began to be fulfilled then. I think that's the significant point that I want to make, that we are in the act of fulfillment of revelation, and so were they 2,000 years ago. Do you see what I'm saying? That puts in a different light, doesn't it? Those seven churches were written to in that time for those things that were uh, pertaining to the time of the end, and the prophetic urgency was live for Christ. He's at the door. He's always at the door. And we're going to stand before him maybe in a moment. And maybe that door opens for us in a moment. So uh, it seems to me it's, it's true, but we are to pray. We, uh, we are to pray to God, basically, execute all your plan and so begin the process of your coming even now. Begin the things that will result in your coming. So Jesus' coming quickly can be understood, again, in the sense of live for him now or in the sense you're going to die soon and that coming is going to be for you at that point over, right? Right? Uh, So he hasn't come in 2,000 years. Um, But he came very soon for all of John's original audience. They've all stood before him. He came soon uh, for all of them. In a few decades, less than 100 years, assuming that none of them were, you know, two years old and read the book and lived to be 103. Uh, (laughs) So Jesus, uh, uh, so therefore, it seems to me, the end begins now. As John was writing the letter, the forces that would culminate in the second coming of Christ were starting right then and there, the resistance to the gospel, the world against the church, Satan stirring up false teaching in the church, right? The whore of Babylon tempting people to wicked lives. Persecution beginning right then and there. It was happening. False messiahs happening. Tyrannical governments happening. Christians tempted by wealth and lust. All of that was beginning in that time. So John is urging his listeners, saying, these things are beginning. The last days, it seems to me, began with the great commission of the church, There's no other period of time we're waiting for until the second coming. The book of Revelation covers that whole period from the resurrection to the second coming. And so I would close by saying we are in the book of Revelation now. The beast, the false prophet, the harlot are now active already, not in the fullness of what they will be, but they're active, they're happening. The spirit of Antichrist, John says, is already in the world. People are already taking his number. They're already taking his mark. This means to be uh, on his side, to be owned by him. God is sealing his own right now. The scroll is being unsealed. The trumpets are blowing. The gospel is being proclaimed. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And in some cases is being poured out as we see his judgments. God uh, is coming. Fear God. Come to Christ. And may his grace be with us. Uh, So I think the final gospel call to believe. With the final reminder that salvation is by grace alone. Right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the Bible ends with a benediction, you know, of the blessing, uh, the grace be with you all, and the prayer that he would come, and even so come, you know, because um, we want that fullness. We're looking forward to it. Um, A couple of other points to make before I open it up for questions. Um, So um, the dating issue, and I just wanted to touch on one more thing. There are external and internal arguments, all right? The external arguments are what other people said about the book. Again, the book has to be written by 64 or 65, before 66, when the war started, um, in order for the predisposition to even be possible. I'm not even saying that makes it true at that point, but for even to be possible. Um, And all you would have to do is show that it's written after the time, and it's not possible. The two lines of evidence, therefore, external evidence, internal evidence— Overwhelmingly today, scholars believe it was written after 70 AD. Most of that's because of the early witnesses, the statement of Irenaeus in around 180 AD. And remember, Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, and Polycarp was discipled by John in this area. And he says clearly that it was written by John in the time of Domitian, which would be the the traditional dating of 94, 95. And so that's a strong Tradition, because it's right in that region. And there's no other tradition, there's no other witness to the, any uh, other date of revelation in this part of the world until the 5th or 6th century. We have no other church extant teaching. Uh, so if, if, there's, if an earlier date was genuine, you would think that this is the place they would have remembered that. And Polycarp, who remembered, who knew John, would have been able to communicate that to Irenaeus, and yet Irenaeus uh, is the one that most go by. Um, And also you can see support for this in Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius, uh, all support Irenaeus' statement. So um, the first clear, accepted, unambiguous witness to a neuronic date that Revelation was written, the time of Nero, who dies um, uh, shortly after the war begins, is a one-line subscription in the Syriac translation of the New Testament in A.D. 550, uh, and then there are two other external witnesses, uh, uh, Arethus about 900 A.D. and Theophilic about, uh, 11, oh, about 1100. Uh, so that's not a lot of evidence outside of the book, that direct evidence that claims that it was written at the time of Nero. Um, and and Irenaeus' claim seems to be authoritative. Uh, internally, is where the arguments are usually made. It's said that John is told, you know, that he, John refers to a temple in Jerusalem repeatedly, that the temple is there, that he's to measure the temple. And how could this be if the temple was destroyed, if it's after 70 AD? Well, we've got to remember John is receiving a vision of the future. Uh, John uses the word saw 49 times in 46 verses. It doesn't matter whether the temple was standing in Jerusalem. He's told by the temple to measure the temple in 11.1. One, measure what temple? Not the one there in Jerusalem. We know that because it's way out of line with that. Uh, and uh, also Ezekiel in his vision in Ezekiel 40 was told to measure the temple. And we know when Ezekiel was given that vision, everyone agrees. There was no temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And Ezekiel is given a vision of a temple in Jerusalem, and he's told to measure it, and there's no temple there. So that actually lends a support to the idea that John would be given the same thing. The temple isn't there. Go and measure a temple that's not there, just like Ezekiel had to do. By the way, even preterists admit that when Ezekiel got his vision, clearly the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So um, the other big line is the kings. You know, the five have come and one is and one is to come. And they say those are the seven kings, starting with Julius Caesar, who technically wasn't an emperor. Augustus was the first, so we'd have to count a little bit differently than what the Romans themselves counted. But if you count Julius, you can get, get it. Um, but then Revelation has to be written while Nero is still alive because he has to uh, be the one um, who, is, the three that come after him um, haven't come yet. Uh, so that would say that um, uh, Nero is the one in question in 1710. Um, and then they pronounces Nero as the one to which 1710 refers the beast. Now, if it's not Nero, it's Galba. And Galba's like there and gone. That doesn't make sense. How could he be the beast? So you've got some issues when you really try to apply it. Um, because there were three uh, emperors right, right away before Vespasian. And Vespasian comes and stays for 30 years. He's not there for a short time. Uh, and so it seems to me that um, the adjective little, the idea of brevity in 12.12, God is saying he has decreed the time of this final empire will be shorter than the previous six. Plus the seven churches. What about the seven churches? Did they look more like first generation churches in 65 A.D. Or do they look like second generation churches in, in 95 A.D.? If Revelation was written in 64, 65, that's about the time Paul writes his letter to Timothy. And Timothy was in Ephesus at the time, but Paul never mentions any of the things that John says are happening in Ephesus, the serious issues that are happening in Ephesus. Paul never mentions them. He doesn't seem to be aware of them. Um, And that would be happening, again, about the same time. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, says that no church in Smyrna existed during the ministry of Paul. But there's a letter to Smyrna 65 AD, it was one of the seven letters. Polycarp says, and Polycarp, Paul dies around 66, 67. Polycarp says the the church of Smyrna came into existence after Paul's death. Uh, So that would be another argument internally that it can't be the case. Um, So um, there's some other arguments. Um, Laodicea was destroyed by a major earthquake in 60 A.D. History says it took them 25 years to rebuild, and yet when John writes to Laodicea, he talks about how luxurious, luxurious it is, which would mean, and it's, and it's in the midst of five years after this horrible earthquake. It would, it would not have been that case. So a lot of internal evidence I think you can point to, um, but I just wanted to leave you with that, because that to me is the big question. A lot of Reformed people take that preterist post view, and it hinges on the date um, and to me, the bigger, the bigger uh, argument is the whole book. The whole book pictures to me uh, living for Christ spiritually and all of those images culminating in the new heavens and the new earth, which really is the eternal state, and it should be a comfort to us. So at that, I will open it up to questions. 36 classes, I'm sure you all... Yes! Yeah. Yes. So those seven letters Jesus wrote those seven. Yeah. They were
1: individual letters. He
0: wrote them. Yeah. So just think of that. Mm-hmm. So there's a corporate aspect of that, right? Yeah. And that he knew each one of their sins. That's right. Yes, yeah. You know, that's right, Mr. corsello And one of the things that I'm persuaded by is the idea that when you look at Revelation the way I've looked at it, and I've, you know, I, taught, I started out and I was honest with you. I, I wanted to study and find what I thought it was. And I'm more confident in the position that I've now taken. But one of the things that makes it attractive, now this doesn't prove it, But in the way that I've understood it, and I would say that the majority of the Reformed scholars throughout history have understood it this way, so I've not come up with anything new or creative. You know, I'm just run-of-the-mill, Reformed, you know, all-mill here, um, revelation. But the whole book is applicable to every Christian in every age. It's not like this one generation, someday the book's going to kick in and mean something. Until then, we're just looking at what hasn't happened yet. Whether it's the dispensational... You know, things are going to happen in the actual literal world. Or if whether it's the preterist post-mill, the last generation is going to get this new heavens and a new earth to come down. It still hasn't happened yet for anybody. You know what I mean? It, it, that's part of the, I think, detracting of that, those views. There's going to be a generation that's going to enjoy that new heavens and new earth. We haven't. We haven't hasn't happened yet. Uh, in my view, it's a picture of heaven and we all get it, but we're tasting it now and we're heading towards it now. Bob. Uh,
1: yeah, except that on that last point. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're about to do Deuteronomy. Yeah. M- much of what Deuteronomy says applied only to them. But it does apply to us. Mm. So as a preterist, I would argue that there are plenty of things in there. Yeah. So- happen in Scripture that don't apply to us because they're fast and we don't have the ceremony law. Sure. That, no, but point, point but granted. There, but there's plenty of things we can draw from it. So I just, you know, just in terms of that, I would suggest that I get your point that it's not, that it is, you know, creditor's view tends to be very focused mm-hmm. on those immediate situations. Yes. Yes. And, and Jesus is still going to come back. So yeah. uh, that, that would be my
0: comment. Okay, good. Uh, would you take, as a preterist, the position that 21 and 22 are also the church age, or would you I see know, that as a second I, I would comment? I
1: say that, they, that 20 is, in a sense, 20 says, this is where we are now. Yes. This is the church age. Okay. And then, after that, uh,
0: you would have the more etern- the eternal... Status. So with 19... You're done with Jerusalem, and with 20, you're looking now at a church age. So that would be a partial preterist position. Yeah, and I can definitely respect that position more um, because I think it's just really hard for me to look at 21 and 22 as the church age, you know? Yeah. I think the full preterist position has some serious problems. Yeah, I think we can agree on that. Um, yes? I can't help when I was listening to you but to think about all four Gospels and how Jesus kept on addressing the Sadducees
1: and the Pharisees mm. and saying that you're missing it, that, you
0: know, they were always looking for a king, right? Yes. King. And he said like, no, this is spiritual. Hmm. I, I, you know that's that to me is the great attraction of the view that I have. That, I mean, I can honestly say that I am living in the Book of Revelation. I believe it. I believe these things are happening. I think they're going. They're heading towards a culmination where Christ will really return. But um, I think that's you know again that doesn't prove it. It's really in a sense not an argument. It's a it's an it's a wow. I, I this book's more important to me now because it feels like. It's talking to me all the way through it, which before I was more caught up in the imagery. Is it literal? Is it figurative? Um, and I, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at in it now. So <laughs> maybe, maybe you're not. Uh, any, other, like any other points or questions? I mean, this is it. We're going to get into Deuteronomy next week. John. I just
1: have one. I think I'll write one point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, but in heaven, we don't look at God,
1: I think, big enough sometimes. Uh, And and that doesn't explain any of these things that that we've been talking about. But God is answerable to nothing, no personal thing. He's ineffable. We don't completely understand him. And and as far as I know, he doesn't deal with time time the way we do. But, you know, he's God's God.
0: Yes, that's a good way. Yes, Jess. don't know if you heard but uh, Jesse's question was that the context of the books being written like for example letters of John with Gnosticism some of the things you know those who've denied Jesus has come in the flesh which would be John speaking probably to the pre-Gnostics um, yes uh, I do think a lot of the imagery is in that time frame you know that when John talks about um, you know gates and walls you know what I mean the new Jerusalem having gates and walls well that's the only way he could understand a city and I believe God gave him that vision of a city, with gates and walls. But, I, you know, is heaven literally that way? Or, you know, again, kings, always referring to kings and emperors and, you know, things like that, beasts. I mean, beasts goes back to Daniel, right? And even before that, too, um, the, the Pentateuch, where sometimes the foreign countries are likened to ravenous beasts, you know, wild animals. Um, pagans being likened that way. And then, you know, enemies of God who is a God of order. So, I think there is a lot of that. I think there's contextual uh, language that, again, we want to try to get the principle from, right? You know, that it's not, okay, that every country has to have a monarchy someday um, or something like that. Or to think in terms of, you know, cities having to have walls or, you know, does heaven really have, you know, gates and things like that in cities. And should we understand this, you know, the 12 foundations, the 12 gates, I mean, again, 12 being the symbol of the fullness of God's people. All 12 of the tribes, you know, represented. And so that's the context. There were 12 tribes. God chose 12 tribes. So we had to see this 12. The names, you know, uh, of the apostles, the names of the sons of Jacob. Um, You know, all of those things to me are images of the perfect church. Not one of them will be lost. They'll all be there. And it's one church. John's very clear to put together the sons of Jacob with the apostles on that one building. There's not not an earthly Old Testament people and a heavenly New Testament people. They should all come to Christ, you know, and again, I think this this book really seeks to unify the church in a lot of ways. All seven of those churches, you know, having all those problems, and yet every one of us, you know, can relate to those sins, Um, even if I'm, you know, 2,000 years after the church of Pergamum. Um, And so I think that... uh, there really is a lot of that, and it's, that's a study, right? That's, a, that's something to study for the rest of your life, I mean, to really try to see what is the image representing. I, we, we've got to be careful that just because we can make it something doesn't mean that it is, right? The, the, the comment that I read, well, the 12 months in the year might be the 12 different, you know... Um, Seasons of the church or something like that. Oh, I can make it mean that, but I really don't think that's what it is. I think a, a fruit, I mean, much more obvious to me is that if a, if a tree is bearing fruit every month, then there's food always, right? That's the imagery. The tree is, all life is always there for those who believe. And in heaven, the fullness of life is there. You're never waiting for the tree. There's never waiting for anything in heaven all the delights are active. We, we see God's face. There's no more desire that's unmet. So, well, let's, um, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin Deuteronomy. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. Father, I just recognize and acknowledge, Lord God, my inadequacy and in being able to deal really with any of your word in a, in a comprehensive way, but especially this book that just is so rich and just shows the great knowledge and love for your word that you must have given the Apostle John, that he could just draw on all these images. And we know you inspired them to him to write every one of these things. And yet, Lord, I don't think that you would have done that apart from his intellect, but that you would have quickened him in those things. And so, Father, help us to be diligent students of your word if we learn nothing else from this book, Let us learn we need to be in your word. We need to be saturating our thinking with the images of scripture and remembering that there is a fulfillment to these things, that there will be an eternal life with new bodies, new heavens, new earth, that there is an end coming, an end that will continue for all eternity, that we will be with you and you will be with us. And we thank you for this message. In Jesus' name, amen.